Believe it or not, I love the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The sermon is entitled, The Genesis of Jesus Christ, because I titled it that because the word genealogy in verse 1 of chapter 1 is literally the Greek word for Genesis. And so what Matthew is doing is giving us the genesis of Jesus. The word, looked it up, genesis means origin, the beginning of. So Matthew's giving us the origin of the beginnings of Jesus Christ in his earthly form. Of course, we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus was with the Father in heaven from the beginning of time. But here is his earthly form, his incarnation. And this is how it began on earth. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Are you ready for a stimulating read? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, there's a familiar name, by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. Thus ends the first paragraph. Now the second. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah. You remember King Uzziah in uh, Isaiah? Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, that's Amos the prophet, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's the second phase. And the third one, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, here we go, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Verse 17 ties it together. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Isn't it amazing how God works things out like that? Three series of 14 generations each, and then Jesus came. What is God trying to tell us? about the lineage of Jesus in these 17 verses. It's amazing. Let's bow together. Father, open our eyes and hearts and ears to the message of your love and mercy for all people, even in this lineage of grace in Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. When you're getting to know somebody and you want to know, if I'm meeting somebody, I want to know, well, do you live here in Tifton? Are you from out of town? Who are your parents? Who are your grandparents? You know, just trying to get to know somebody, get a feel for who they are and from whence they sprang. You, you identify people 
by those you're already familiar with. And so we come to Matthew 1.1 in Jesus. Matthew, remember, is writing to a Jewish audience. And that's why, incidentally, Matthew's gospel has so many Old Testament quotations in it, because Matthew is proving to the Jewish people that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies, all those quotations that he incorporates into his gospel. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so Matthew, introducing Jesus to the Jewish people, he starts with folks they're familiar with. And the Greek actually says the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew is also reminding the Jewish people of the Old Testament book of Genesis, something they would associate with immediately. Genesis means origin, coming into existence, beginning of, and as I mentioned, Matthew is introducing the human origin of Jesus because we know Jesus was in the beginning with God. And he reminds his readers of the Old Testament book of Genesis and its connection to the Genesis of Jesus Christ. We were taught in seminary that how a book begins and how it concludes are the two most important parts of the book. And so how Matthew begins is the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus. We, we are tempted to skip over all these names. And incidentally, when you get to Leviticus, when you get to um, other, other books, First and Second Chronicles, wherever you are in the Old Testament, we want to just skim through all of that. But remember, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for our teaching. So what is God trying to tell us in even the genealogy of Jesus? Folks are fascinated by genealogies, particularly the Jewish people, but even today, I've noticed there's more and more people, more and more people signing on to uh, Ancestry.com. I've been to folks' houses and seen on their dining room table how they had huge family trees laid out trying to trace back who their great-grandfather, their great-great-grandfather, grandmother, how far back they go. And I've noticed on television, too, there, there are a lot of ads for 23andMe. Com. Have you seen that where you can send some saliva in and find out your DNA and where your ancestors came from? And it seems like people are fascinated by that. I don't really know what has to do with Christmas unless you give that to somebody for a Christmas present. I don't know. I don't get it. But a lot of folks are wanting to find out who their ancestors are, who their forebears are, and how that impacts who they are in their own genetic makeup, I guess. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago that said that of the 26, um, of, of 26 of the Mayflower pilgrims had children. Twelve generations have passed since that time, so the descendants of those 26 pilgrims now number about 25 million descendants. And that means of the 25 million descendants that there's a one in 12 chance that some of you in here are descendants of a Mayflower pilgrim. I don't know if that qualifies you for anything special, but that's just pretty, pretty strong. It's fascinating to know who our forebears are, why they came to this land of opportunity, where they lived, what they did. In Jesus' day, your genealogy was even more important than it is in our day-to-day, -day. because in order to own land in Israel, you had to have documents that proved who your ancestors were that gave you a right to a piece of that precious, small bit of land called the Holy Land. 
There were privileges associated with different tribes. If you wanted to be a priest, you had to be a member of the, the tribe of Levi. And that kind of meant you were a blue blood. You, you were somebody, if certain tribes had certain privileges. And so everybody was very careful to trace their genealogy back as far as they possibly could. Most of all, the Jews expect the Messiah to come from a certain family in the house of David. And what's interesting in the Gospels is that even Jesus' bitterest enemies never once argued or debated his genealogy. It must have been a matter of public record that Jesus was indeed the heir of David and of Abraham, and as such, he was an inheritor to the promises of Israel. And yet more important, I think, than telling us in these 17 verses who Jesus is, I love what these verses tell us about who God is. Because I see in these 17 verses the gospel, who God is, basically in a nutshell. This is three paragraphs, three times 14 different generations, indicating a three-point sermon as to the nature of God. Here it is. The first 14 generations tell us about a God who loves everybody. And I'll show you how I see that in these 14 verses. The second 14 verses show us how at the height of David's reign, the golden age of Israel, what they did to descend into captivity and rebellion and being carried off into Babylon, deportation. And then the third paragraph of 14 names. It shows how despite their sin, despite God's judgment on them and their being conquered and carried off into Babylon, he still loves them and he still extends them mercy. And at the end of these 14 names comes the name of Jesus that they were long awaiting. So all this is significant. Three paragraphs, 14 names each, 14 generations times three. And so let's break it down and look at it. The first 14 names deal with God's love. Why do I say that? Because we've got to look at the names in here. The most striking thing about these first 14 names is the mention of four women. Four women. It's unusual to list women in a Jewish genealogy. And if you did mention women, it would be for the purpose of enhancing your nobility, your purity, your, uh, the, the, the prestige of your line. But when Matthew mentions women, I would expect him to mention some outstanding women like Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, the wives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But those aren't the women who are mentioned. Who's mentioned in these opening verses? We see Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uriah. We know who they were. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Ruth was from Moab, the land west of the Jordan River. Matthew chooses women who do not bring credibility to the Jewishness of Jesus, but the very opposite. He chooses women to show how diverse Jesus' bloodline actually was. And so I think that's the first thing Matthew is trying to, to tell us. He wants us to know that God's love is bigger than the Jewish race and that Jesus is the Savior of all people, that Jesus is the light to the nations, that he is a fulfillment to the promise of Abraham. Through you shall all the nations of the world be blessed because God doesn't 
focus on races. He doesn't focus on genders. Remember, Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience, and he wants us to know that the blood of two Gentile women coursed through the veins of the Savior of the world. And yet that doesn't even begin to compare to the audacity that Matthew shows as he continues to show who these women were because not only were two of them Gentiles, three of them were sinners, notorious. They were renowned for their sin. With the exception of Ruth, none of these women had morals that were anything to write home about. As a matter of fact, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba um, were not models for our, our young women. I've never met a girl named Tamar, Rahab, or Bathsheba. Have you? Do you know any, anybody named any of those? I did have a, uh, a New Testament professor who told us he named his dog Rahab. And uh, true to her name, she had a litter of puppies out of wedlock. <laughs> but we just don't name our daughters after these, these women. You know the story, Tamar, where is she? Verse 3. You know the story of Tamar in the Old Testament? I can't read it in mixed company. But basically, she tricked her father-in-law into an incestuous relationship and having children. And she's the great-great-grandmother of the Messiah. Har Rahab, she was the harlot on the walls of Jericho when Joshua was getting ready to conquer that city. And she, she assisted in that endeavor. And look, she is a, a mother of Boaz. Boaz who married Ruth and had a son named Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of King David. And then we come to verse 6. It says, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who was the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. He doesn't even mention, he can't mention her name in public and so he uses this circumlocution. He uses a roundabout name to refer to the wife of Uriah with David beget Solomon. And yet she's another distant grandmother of our Lord. It's almost as if Matthew is scouring the lineage of Jesus in order to highlight the skeletons in the closet. Why? Because he wants us to know that God's love is bigger than the Jewish race, that God's love is greater than your sin and my sin. God's love embraces us in the midst of our sinfulness because he uses stained and soiled but repentant sinners in order to bring the Messiah in the flesh on earth. Even these dry begats of the Bible drip with the grace and love and mercy and forgiveness that characterize Jesus' life because it's in his lineage. He's a friend of sinners because there were sinners hanging all over his family tree. He's a light to the Gentiles because there were Gentiles in his family. Ruth, Rahab, sinners, Rahab, Bathsheba, Tamar. It occurred to me that Jesus is the only person who ever lived who could pick his family tree. Jesus is the only person ever born who could choose who his ancestors were. So who these people were must have been significant to him. Look whom he chose. An ordinary human family with sinners and, and good folks and, and saints and foreigners all mixed in together. Holy people like Abraham, wicked kings like Ahab, 
sweet, saintly Ruth, beautiful Bathsheba. Jesus didn't land on earth like a meteor. He was born in the usual way into a real human family. And I think that's great. Because we're in the middle of some messed up families right now. And we wonder, does God understand the, the pain my family's going through? Does he feel the hurt that my family members feel, that I hurt for my loved ones? And the answer is yes. Because Jesus came into this world for, through a very ordinary human family with all kinds of people mixed in his family tree together because that's what he chose to do. And he could have chosen anything. The second paragraph of 14 names reveal to us the common human condition that even though God loves us and has provided for us, we still are disobedient sinners. Things begin to unravel for Israel because of their disobedience. At the beginning of the second paragraph, David was the king. And then David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This first paragraph builds up to King David. That was Israel's golden age. It didn't get any better in the history of Israel than David's kingship. But then things begin to unravel and go downhill quickly. Why? Why did Israel get conquered and carried off into chains into Babylon, the deportation into Babylon? We find a hint in verse 10. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah. So the prophet Amos is in Jesus' lineage. And if you turn back to the prophet Amos in chapter 2, verse 6, this was the message that this prophet gave his people. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke my punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. In other words, Israel quit caring about those who couldn't care for themselves. Israel fell apart because they separated their religion from their action. In Israel, there is no secular and sacred. For God, there is no secular and sacred. Everything is sacred for God. It's all one. It's all combined. And it wasn't that Israel didn't go to church often enough. My goodness, the temple was booming. It was big business in Israel's day. But that's all it was. It was just a business. And if you're like that, then I'm then I'm afraid your heart's not broken for the things that break the hearts of God. Because God cared about needy people. He cared about those that were righteous and yet being sold for silver, for slavery, for people who needed shoes, for people who were hungry, for the widow, for the orphan. God cared about those, those things, and Israel turned their back on them. Amos said there is only one perspective through which you get a clear view of this world, and that is through a heartbreak in the tear of God. And so Amos soaked his robes as he cried out for the poor and the orphan and the widow. And this paragraph is the downhill slide of Israel into oblivion because they quit caring about each other. Because their religion that was booming had no impact whatsoever in how they lived or how they took care of each other.
And that began their, their slavery and they're carried off into, into Babylon. Disobedience brings judgment. The first paragraph is God's all-encompassing love. The second paragraph is God's judgment on sin and disobedience. This is, this is the way it is for us too, but it's not over. There's a third paragraph, another 14 generations, and it celebrates God's undeserved grace. Undes there was one thing that all 42 generations had in common. Three times 14, they were all waiting and looking and hoping for something better to come along. They were scanning the horizon like a child waiting on tiptoes for Christmas morning. Generations came and generations went, but they were watching and waiting and they were hoping for the arrival of the Messiah. They were so desperate that when this man named John the Baptist who came in eating locust and wild honey and wearing a mantle, of a hairy mantle, they were so desperate, they ran up to him and said, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we are waiting for, the one who is to come? And John the Baptist said, no, I'm not even worthy to tie the, the thongs on his sandals. They were desperate for a Messiah. And some of us are waiting this morning for God to move in in power and situations of misery and pain and sorrow and heartache and we're getting tired of waiting and we ask, how long, oh Lord, are you going to tarry? Are you really going to be faithful to your promises to come again? Well, my friends, I can assure you that he is, but he's going to do it like he did it the first time. He's going to do it when time is perfect in his own time. And we have to trust that God will move in his own way, in his own time, in his own will. Because one of my favorite passages in Galatians 4, verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so you and I might receive adoption as sons. When did Jesus come the, the first time? Not when people thought he should. He came when God knew it was perfect. The Greek word means the fullness of time, when everything was full, when everything was ready, when all the, the different intersections came together perfectly and knit together for God's son to come. That's when God sent Jesus to be born the first time, and that's when God is going to bring him back the second time. In the fullness of time, when everything has been made perfectly ready. God is faithful. And when he came, he was of the line of David, which meant he had the right to sit on the throne of David. King Herod was right to be terrified of this baby because Jesus was heir to the throne. Not only was he the son of David, he was also the son of God. And so we come to this surprising phrase, this sentence in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Does that strike you as strange? Remember, Jesus was not Joseph's son. Jesus was the son of God, the virgin birth by the Holy Spirit. So how is he Joseph's son? Well, according to Jewish law, when you name a child you adopt that child 
into your line. And that's what happened in verse 21. Remember the angel came to Joseph and said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that's what Joseph did down in verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, knew her not until she had born a son and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph named the child Jesus, and in naming that child, he adopted him into his line, the line of David, the line of Abraham. And that's how Jesus was Joseph's son by adoption. What does it mean for you and me today? Well, it means when Jesus came, he canceled out the importance of the bloodline connecting the Jewish people to Abraham. We can no longer grandfather our way into the kingdom of God on the coattails of our ancestors. You can't say, Abraham was my father. Abraham was my father. It doesn't matter. What matters now is whether Jesus is your Lord. Because when you believe in Jesus you are adopted into the line of God. You are an heir of God. You are a fellow heir with Jesus. It doesn't matter to God if your father attended this church or that church or if your grandfather was a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or whomever. It doesn't matter. What matters, it doesn't matter if you're a good person. It doesn't matter if you're a better person than anybody you know. What matters is if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you can say the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my light and my salvation. It's not my father, not my mother, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. The royal bloodline that Jesus brought to earth continues down through the ages and extends to today and God's genealogy can be yours and mine. But the bloodline has been replaced by faith. John 1.12 says, For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God, born not of blood, but of God. You can be born of God by your faith in Jesus Christ. So we have earthly genealogies, and I don't want to get morbid here, but I know who my grandparents were, but I don't know who my great-grandparents were. And, and, you know, I hope one day my grandchildren might know who Susan and I were and are, but our great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, I don't know. We may be forgotten here on earth. And that's okay, because what's important is will we be remembered in the mind of God? Because that's what is important and that's what counts. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel tells us that, that Jesus came in a human line with saints and sinners, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, all mixed up together because his love and his mercy were for everybody. And this was the beginning of a new way of life, of a new way of being a child of God, born not of blood, but of faith in his only begotten son. 
So Matthew 1.17 is the beginning, is the story of Israel's beginning, their climb up to the golden age of King David, their downfall because they quit caring for each other, the deportation to Babylon, and then God's mercy that extended past that all, resulting when Jesus came in the fullness of time to save us all. We're approaching that time at Christmas now. And I hope if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, you won't let these next few days pass without being adopted into the family of God by faith in his only begotten Son. Bow with me. God, we thank you for sending Jesus who made it possible for us, male, female, Jew, Gentile, saint, sinner, all alike, all in need of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness, and you extended it freely and proved that by sending Jesus in the perfect fullness of time. He came. And he had real humanity in his family tree. So that we know, you know what it's like to live here, to hurt, to struggle, to be in pain, and yet still believe. Help us, Lord, to trust in you, to believe in you and to receive your grace and mercy that we so desperately need. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.